You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. In our last episode, you heard part one of Celia Cassow's testimony. She told interviewers Laurel Vlock and Hillel Klein about her life after Nazi Germany occupied her hometown. If you haven't heard part one, please go back and listen. At the end of part one, Celia was in hiding underneath the floorboards of a barn on a Polish farm. The surviving members of her family were living in a Jewish ghetto where food was scarce. They managed to escape and make their way to a different ghetto nearby. In December of 1942, my family went from the ghetto of Globok. My mother came originally from another town, from Postov. And she had her whole family there, four brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles. They were about 150, 120 people. So they uh, worked it out. I didn't know how they did it, but my mother and the remaining two sisters with their children and my little sister moved to Postov Ghetto. Postov Ghetto was situated near a very large lake. When they exterminated this ghetto, they rounded everyone up towards the lake and everyone was exterminated. Very, very few people remained from Postov. I lost my mother there, I lost the two sisters, their children, and a brother-in-law, plus uncles and aunts and cousins. This is one ghetto that people did not have a chance to escape. Who told you about that? How did you know about what happened in Well, Postop? my sister, my little sister, swam under... She was a champion swimmer as a child. She swam under the ice in 40 below. She escaped, the only one. Took her three weeks to make the 40 kilometers or 50 kilometers from this ghetto to where I was hiding. She knew where I was, but she would not ask the peasants where Lapushino is. She was afraid. So she kind of sneaked around, barefoot, naked, hungry, frozen, swollen. One day the peasant was feeding the cows and he had huge baskets that they used to have on their shoulders. They were huge, about a yard in diameter with hay they used to carry to the cows in the fields. He spotted her lying there frozen. He put her in the basket, he brought her in. My sister was swollen, frostbitten, very, very sick with pneumonia. I don't know how she survived. She made it. And this is when we started joining our hall under the floor together, my sister and I. I went in hiding in June, and my sister came in in December. And this lasted until 1943 in October. We would be lying, the two of us, and we never talked. We couldn't talk. Our two brothers found out that we were alive, and they got in contact with our peasant. And they said, the first thing girls you need is a, is a gun, because if you will ever be caught alive, I can describe to you what it will mean to be caught alive, a Jewish girl. They didn't kill you, but they hung you on a, on a butcher hook, and they cut you to pieces. 
So he said, you're never going to be caught alive. He said, I give you a gun in case, you know, the Germans are advancing. One has to shoot the other and then shoot herself. Never, 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 he said, under any circumstances, allow yourself to be caught alive. Well, my sister and I were in hiding one day, and uh, the, the farmer said, quick, Germans, be as quiet as you can. We were in this little hall. So much water started coming in. We didn't have any air to breathe. And then we heard footsteps over us. So I said to my sister, now, you kill me first and then kill yourself. She said, no. She said, you're the older one. You want to kill me. I said, no, you're the younger one. You're going to kill me. And she had her gun poised at me already because we heard German and we heard a lot of footsteps. It just so happened they were retreating, leaving the barn, and the farmer gave us three knocks, and we knew we were safe. But we were lying in this field, rotting, human corpses, really rotting, being alive, barely. We were covered with sores. We were frozen, we were cold, we were numb. We could not think at all. But then when the Germans retreated for a couple of days, he took us out. We had a chance to be washed up. They fed us a hot meals, meal, and of course, back in the hall we went. And then a couple of days later, the reason the Germans came there, they were um, surveying the area. They set up headquarters in this farm where we were hiding, my sister and I, to uh, conduct their blockade on the partisans. Headquarters in this barn where we were sitting. Now, what do we do? My sister was smuggled out to the partisans. And the farmer said, you're too big. You're too not noticeable. I can't do it with you. You have to go in the open. You have to come to the house. Live with us. I said, live with you? I mean, are you crazy? He said, the Germans are all over. You can't escape. It's too late. <sighs> I got up my courage, combed my hair, put a smile on my face, put on a dress, and went into the house. Sat down at the table to eat. Who do you think marches in? As an interpreter, my best friend, a Polish girl from school. Helena Wunkiewicz was her name. I'll never forget it. They were eating at a table, and they had those wooden spoons, and they were shaking. There was a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, the girls. They were so frightened. I was with them, and the Germans came in, in the house with this interpreter. I don't think she had mercy on me. I doubt it very much. I think what she was concerned with is the farmer. She looked at me, I looked at her, and she did not let on that she knows me at all. They came, they surveyed the area, they took measurements, they set up um, heavy machinery, and they went. The same night, he said to me, you have to go, he said, because your life is really in danger. There were rivers, one large river and one small river meeting at a T right on their property. He took uh, and he, conduct, he constructed a raft of three big trees. He put me on the raft, shoved me across the river to the partisan area. Of course, partisans were about 40 kilometers away. He told me in which general direction I, I should go. The partisans should be here and here and here. After lying under uh, a floor 
for almost a year and a half. I didn't have any muscles. I was soft. I was achy. I didn't know how to walk anymore. After wandering about at night in the dark, cold, I heard some footsteps and they halt in Russian. Who are you? So I said to them, I'm Jewish. What's your name? I told them. How do we know who you are? I said, well, I have two brothers who are in partisans. Their names are such and such. Okay, we know who they are. Come with us. They took me and they led me to the partisan camp. It was such commotion. It was such chaos. At that time, the Germans uh, made a blockade on the partisans. The partisans were getting ready to evacuate. Evacuate where? Everything was German territory. The partisans were getting very well organized by that time, by 1943. They had radio contact with Moscow. They had parachute drops of ammunition. And they had uh, personnel, trained personnel, to organize like an army. And the Germans were afraid of them because the war was not uh, going so well for them. And they knew that eventually they'll have to retreat. And it would be very difficult to retreat with the partisans working in the background. So they decided to exterminate the partisans. What was about you? Could you tell more about Well, yourself? I was new. I was frightened. I didn't know who is alive and who is dead. I found my two brothers... And I found my little sister in the partisans. But in the chaos, we got separated. What I did find out is my older brother had a knee injury. He was begging to be shot. Please don't leave me behind alive. But we had a lot of people that knew him very well, and they pulled their resources. Whoever had one watch left over or maybe a gold piece or something, and they bribed a pilot who dropped ammunition. There was no room for him in the plane. They tied him to a wing, I swear. They tied him to a wing with rope, and they evacuated my brother. We didn't know whether he made it or not, but obviously he did make it. We found out after the war he came back alive. He's in Israel now. We got out from the blockade. Of course, we had a lot of ambushes. We lost a lot of partisans, including they were Jews living in the woods that were uh, supported by the partisans. There were groups of Jews that were non-fighting, they were in non-combat, but they were living in the woods and hiding in dugouts. And the partisans used to support them with food. Uh, you'll ask, how did we obtain food? We used to raid villages, take a cow or take a pig or take whatever and kill it. And uh, this is how we um, lived off. Anyway, uh, in this blockade, the Jews were killed off because they had no, no one to direct them where to go and how to go. They were slaughtered. There was no way to go, no place to go. But finally, the Germans retreated and the territory was ours, the woods. And we started operations of sabotage. Uh, they wanted me to work in the kitchen, being a Jew and being a girl. They told me that I sacked a pig. When I looked at that and I started doing it, I fainted flat. I couldn't do it. I said, I'm volunteering for the... Um, patrol. They used to call it Razvetka. They say, you, a Jewish girl in the patrol? I say, yes. I was given a horse, I was given ammunition, and I was given an assignment. My first assignment was, I'll never forget it, there was a school that was used for an ammunition dump for the Germans, and we had to go and set it ablaze, this ammunition dump. I've never been on a horse before. 
I went on the horse with 30 people, two girls, 28, 28 men. And we blew up the school all right, but the horse threw me off. And the Germans had flares all over the place. And I was exposed. My gun, my ammunition went with a horse with a saddle. But some partisan plucked me by, my, by the neck, threw me over the saddle and rescued me. From then on, I was more careful. I knew already how to work. And they taught us how to set explosives on railroad tracks because it was already the end of 43, beginning 44, and the war was turning against the Germans. And we were given orders that to make the retreat of the Germans as difficult as possible. When the first German was caught, a 17-year-old with a wounded knee, the commander handed him over to me, Cecilia, he's all yours. You could torture him, you could kill him. I couldn't. I bandaged his knee, I fed him, and I turned him over uh, with the, uh, all the uh, captured. I couldn't do it. I shot a lot of Germans, a lot of Ukrainians, a lot of Lithuanians in the course of my work, but not point black to take the 17-year-old and kill him. I couldn't do it. But we used to go into villages where we knew that the people corroborated with the Germans and we pulled them out one by one and we killed them. I would like to ask you a personal question. Yes. When you killed, did you felt a kind of feeling of revenge? No, I wouldn't say exactly revenge. I, think, I knew it, it was them or me. I was in the wolf's mouth. I was on their territory. And we came to uh, inflict damage on them. We had to do it very quickly. There wasn't once that we didn't lose people doing it. No, I'm, you mentioned before that you went to the villages. To oh, the, the civilians. That, that yes. was revenge. We knew people that... Uh, did a lot of uh, work for the Germans, and we went into the villages and we exterminated them. The law actually, there was a law not to do it, but they, they didn't pay attention to it. We just did it. I played a very active role in the resistance, and I stayed in the partisans until the Russians liberated us in 1944. And then my uh, soldier's life was finished. I began a civilian life. Of insanity, I would say. I didn't sleep for six months. There weren't any emotions at all. You couldn't hate, you couldn't feel. I loved my two brothers, I loved my sister, but I didn't show it. I just, I, and they felt the same way. Everyone was so distant. We tried to resume our life, which was extremely difficult. We had no money, we had no skills. I was never skilled at home to do anything because uh, I was a pampered child from a well-to-do family. I didn't know how to take care of myself. I was so anxious to go back to school. I tried, I went to Postoff and I found a gymnasium there to resume my education. No way, there were no stipendiums, I had no money. So schooling was out. So the only way for me to survive was to get married. So I started looking for a husband. It's just like you go out and you look for a horse in the market. I was looking for a man, and the first man that wanted me, I got married. And that was the end of my singlehood. I knew him only three weeks, that's all. And uh, because there was no way, everyone was out raping girls. We were helpless little creatures. We couldn't defend ourselves. And we had no way of surviving any other way. You couldn't earn anything. And my husband was a tailor, and right away he started working, and he earned 
bread and eggs and milk and things. I said, gee, at least I'll eat. So you didn't uh, look for romance or compatibility or anything like that. You just got married. Are you still married? To yes, I'm still married, 34 years. It was just a way out. I wanted to leave Poland. And from Poland, we went to Czechoslovakia and we were smuggled out to Germany. And then we came here. It was very hard to start a life after the war was over. Uh, I was pretty suicidal, I must say that. It was very hard for me to get adjusted. I gave birth to a son. I realized... He was born in DP camps. Yes, I was in DP in camps Germany. in Germany, yes. Mm -hmm. So when I came to this country, I came here, he was three years old, and he was enrolled in a kindergarten. I um, couldn't speak, but I relayed my fears to the family service. I told them, I say, I think uh, my son and I need help. We're both not normal. We really can't function the way we are now. And of course, they assigned us some social workers and they started working with both of us. But it was a very uphill battle. The boy struggled for years and years and years. He was an extremely intelligent, sensitive child. And he absorbed every breath I took, every breath I exhaled, he absorbed. And uh, I didn't hide my suffering. I didn't know how to hide it. I was miserable. So he was miserable. And uh, my son really suffered for it. I could say all my three children suffered for it. Your husband is also a survivor? Yes, but my husband did not go through what I did. See, he was sent, he was uh, arrested. So he was sent out to jail. So he was in jail and he was freed. So he was in the back. He didn't even see a German. He suffered, of course, he lost his family and all, but he did not suffer to the extent I did. It was hard for him to understand me. I mean, he hasn't been in a ghetto. He hasn't been in a camp. He hasn't been under German occupation. It is hard for a person who really didn't experience it to really uh, put it in the proper perspective. It's hard. My husband couldn't. I think I am normal right now. I think I'm functioning fine. I had uh, a lot of problems here, health problems, which are hard to take. But um, emotionally, I think I'm fine. Celia Cassow had two more children after she immigrated to the United States. When her children were older, Celia worked as a driving instructor. She also volunteered for many years helping Russian Jewish emigres. Celia Cassow died on February 9, 1994. She was survived by her two daughters, Linda and Cheryl, her son Sam, who was born in the DP camp, and two grandchildren. Her husband, Jacob, died in 1987. The next and final episode of this first season of Those Who Were There features an interview with Celia's son, Sam Kasow. He tells a breathtaking story about the Polish farmer who saved his mother's life. 
If you'd like to learn more about Celia Casal, please visit thosewhowerethere.org. That's where you'll find background information and links to additional resources. To hear more from those who are there, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to thosewhowerethere.org to hear all our previous episodes. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director Stephen Naren. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomachek, Joshua Green, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>